Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. So welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. And today we have a special episode with our guest, Adam Lissagor. Adam is the founder of Sandwich Video, which is a company based in Los Angeles that creates promotional videos for websites and technology platforms. And recently, Adam filmed a series of videos for a project called Discourse, where people of different political leanings sit face-to-face with one another and have a passionate dialogue in order to seek agreement and understanding. And we're here today to talk about Discourse and the many implications of that that come from deep conversations about politics, our beliefs, our values, and our ways of seeing the world. So welcome, Adam. Thank you so much. Great intro, and thank you for having me today. (laughs) Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how the Discourse Project got started, and can you tell us about how your journey uh, starting this has been? Absolutely. So um, I, as you mentioned, I own and um, run a video production company, sort of a creative agency, mostly like an advertising agency. Um, so we trade in, in ideas really in the community, the effective communication of ideas. Um, most of our work centers around explaining ideas of new technology to people who have never experienced it before. So, um, when the, when November 2016 rolled around and things got a little bit dire, it seemed like we had moved far past the point where the two sides were able to even communicate with each other. There was just, we, everybody was operating on a very high level of alert and alarmism. And if, you know, there's a lot of language being tossed around, um, that's, that was all centered around. If your person wins, this is going to happen to the world. And if your person wins, this is going to happen to the world. Um, and there, it seemed like we had moved so far past actual productive communication Um, and so I, you know, I like most people on the side who was probably not uh, excited about Donald Trump being elected our president, um, spent a couple of weeks shell shocked and, um, and not knowing really how to deal with the situations, really trying to answer questions of how did, how did this happen? Cause no one really was fully prepared for it. How did, you know, if I hold these beliefs to be so true and assume that the rest of the world hold these holds these beliefs to be so true, how did a majority of people decide that the opposite tr- truths were true? Um, and so I really what, what I really wanted was an exposure to a whole group of people that had supported Donald Trump and and I had not talked to before people who would have worn a um, make America great again hat 
that I had um, spent so many months caricaturing and generalizing stereotyping, but never really talking to. And um, luckily for me, one of my old high school friends, Jason uh, Stallings, reached out to me um, through Facebook. We hadn't talked for a long time. I did have a sense that he was of that political persuasion. But he, he got in touch with me and he said, hey, it's been a long time. I know what you and your friends must be going through. You must be feeling all sorts of deep things. Um, if you want anybody to talk to you about this uh, and any ways of feel, you know, ameliorating it, if, making it feel better at all, I'm here and let me know if you want to talk. And I had a feeling he'd been doing a little bit of this kind of reach out, uh, you know, re- outreach to, um, to, 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 you know, multiple people. Um, I took him up on it and I just sort of started talking. We, we, we carried on a discourse that would, never got heated, but, you know, through the different messaging platforms, we ended up just kind of having this ongoing conversation for the next weeks and, and probably a few months. And it was then that I, I really like just appreciated having somebody to, even just as a sounding board, even to answer questions for me, like what, you know, the basic question is, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> but, it, you know, obviously not framed like that, but like what, let me get inside of your mind. Cause if maybe if I can e- at least hear you un- explain it, then I don't have to be so fearful of it. Right. And that's kind of when I and uh, one of my colleagues at, at sandwich um, came up with this idea to just do this project and find people on the different, um, the different sides of the equation, and bring them together. Um, most importantly, unmediated uh, without somebody with a microphone in between them saying, what do you think about this guy? And what, you know, what does he think about you really just allowing people to have unfiltered conversation with each other um, with the sole intent of modeling civility um, because civility is possible. And, and I, and my friend Jason's conversation were, um, were proof of that. When I first found discourse, I was on Twitter and uh, a couple of weeks ago I saw a tweet from you with the trailer for Discourse mm-hmm. that started gaining a lot of publicity. People were talking about it online and I reached out to you and asked you to come onto this podcast. And, and so I'm sort of wondering what happened after that tweet? What was the public reception there? Right. So, um, yeah. So as you mentioned, we cut together a trailer for it really just to put it out into the ether at this time where things were starting really to come to a boil again. Um, and it seemed that communication, it, we were no f- closer to actual communication crossing the divide than we had been when we, when we actually shot the thing. So we put out a trailer and, and it was just kind of like, let's see what happens. Well, the first wave of response to it from just from my basic audience, which is a lot of people in sort of my similar um, demographic, I guess, um, were very supportive. Um, Wow, we've been waiting for something like this. The world needs something like this. So excited to see this. Want to see more, et cetera, et cetera. That was the first wave. And then little started, you know, little glimpses and trickling in of dissent of um oh great so we get two white guys telling us you know how to be civil towards each other (laughs) and um really you know uh, more dismissiveness and um recalcitrance to the idea um suggesting that we're way past that point of discourse that 
you know, it's getting real now. The world is as, you know, as much alarmism as it, as we had in November, 2016, but with now a year and a half of, of actual hard evidence that the world of, of realizing all of our fears. Um, and it seemed that, you know, that a whole lot of people out there were resistant to this idea, um, of, of, of hearing out the other side. And that was, I mean, it was fascinating for me to see. It was, um, it was, I didn't, I, I, I expected some, um, but what, but what was most important for me to hear was like, look who's supporting this idea and look who's maybe questioning it and challenging it. And really the evidence pointed to a lot of people that looked like me and came from a similar background as me were supporting it. And then a lot of people who would be considered more marginalized were not supporting it. We're saying actually, you know, Hey, you're not the one who's in the biggest danger right now. You're, you're the one who's we're, we're there are other people who are under great threat of simply being permitted to exist. And, um, civility isn't the answer. And then, coincidentally hmm. right away in the news i think that was the same day that sarah huckabee sanders was like kicked out of a restaurant and the red mm-hmm. the red hen and then all of yeah. a sudden the national discourse was you know <laughs> the intolerant left shouldn't we be she should we be more civil like, like if we're going to engage with the other side we have to be more civil and t- and treat people on the other side with civility and then the backlash to that and the backlash to the backlash. And Hmm. it was really interesting that in the, in the day or two that I, that we put out the discourse trailer, suddenly civility and discourse was national conversation. Wow. So it was this big idea that it's not even converse. It's not even the ability to have a conversation. That conversation isn't going to accomplish anything and that somehow all we need to do is fight and rail against the other side and keep pushing them until something something changes. Right. My question for that is does that strategy even actually work? Right? right? Like that's that's what what uh, some people seem to be saying is hey, we we shouldn't be having these conversations. Mm-hmm. We should just be, you know, taking action and we should just really hate the other side. Yeah. It doesn't seem to actually be producing its the result that the supporters seem to be thinking it does. Right. I mean, the, the strategy of fight, fight, fight at all costs. I understand the, the intent of it because um, rights are being encroached upon. And what do you do in that, <laughs> in that situation? Um, there's not a way to talk your way out of it. There's not a, there's a sense that you can talk your way out of it, but it seemed so counterintuitive to me that anyone on the left who's, I mean, on the left, we like to think think of ourselves ideologically as more um, as pri- as uh, prioritizing humanism. So it was counterintuitive to me that anybody who prizes humanism, which sh- would hold shutting off conversation as a tenet, and to group a whole lot of people together on the other side of the spectrum as um, incapable of 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 discourse. That was what was frustrating and disorienting and discouraging to me. So I ended up, <laughs> I re- I mean, like to be candid, I ended up taking the trailer off of Twitter. I left it up on YouTube, but I took it off of Twitter just because I think I, I'd learned what I needed. I'd heard what I needed to hear. I'd learned from a ton of it and I didn't really want to have to keep relig- relitigating it um, in a public forum. 
without more ado, I think our listeners are probably dying to hear a little bit about the discussions that took place on Discourse and what, what this actually was. So I'd like to play a clip from Sharon and Ben. These are two people who got into a couple of uh, interesting conversations. Do you want to talk a little bit about who they are? And then we are going to play a little clip where they start discussing um, police and race. Sure. Well, when finding people f- to participate in the conversations, we, we actually went through a lengthy ca- uh, quote unquote casting process. I mean, it seems crude to call it casting like it's a, you know, a show or a movie, but casting is what we call the process of finding people to be in our videos. Um, so we did outreach to political activist groups and that's ultimately where we found both Ben and Sharon. Sharon hosts a radio show that is for progressives and Ben is part of a Republican organization, um, in Long Beach, California. And we sat them down across from each other in this day of shooting. We sat five pairs of people down across from each other one by one and, um, with nothing but microphones and chairs and nobody prompting them, nobody asking them questions, nobody directing the conversation, just really like um, getting them into a ring and saying, all right, at the sound of the bell, be as civil <laughs> as you can with each other because we want to show people, we want to show people that it's possible. You know, that was the sole, right. that, that was the proposition is like, you're not here to convince the other person that you're right you're here to show that it's possible to talk to somebody on the other side and not hate each other. And potentially... Was that difficult? uh, Which part? About getting people to to stay civil and to to actually, you know, not focus on getting your point across, but focus on on sort of active listening and and actually trying to connect. No, absolutely not. It was not difficult. You know, I mean, thank God, optimistically, it was not... (laughs) It was not difficult. People want to do that. And I think people, what the experiment proved is that when you sit somebody down in the same space with somebody, instead of putting them on the other end of a Twitter box, <laughs> um, that what they want to do is is compose themselves and be truthful and express their tr- their real intent and keep their emotions at bay. Um, and we did a really good job finding people who wanted to do that who wanted to prove who were that were who were um you know who had every um um uh who had every real real reason to um to to show the world that this kind of conversation can exist and not and not the opposite um so that that was really important that when we found our group of people to participate that um that they not only have a little bit of experience with conversation with the other side, so to speak, um, but they want to do that for the right reasons. Okay. Now let's listen to a little bit of, of Sharon and Ben. You know, I will tell you that I am a Republican. With all that said, my parents are all Democrats. I'm the only Republican in my family. Interesting. And, um, but I will tell you that um, I, voted, I have voted in the past for some Democratic uh, uh, candidates. I've always believed in voting for the candidate or the person, not necessarily the party. I will tell you that um, I have become very much uh, concerned, though, uh, these last eight years, um, when Obama was was elected president, the first term it was great. I know it was exciting. First black man to be you know to be elected. It was a great thing. It was a great progress for our country to show that hey, race isn't the number one concern. We've got you know so it was all very good. I, I didn't necessarily vote for him, but I did have a lot of friends that did, and I understood 
the momentum and the hope and the change and everything else. The biggest problem though that I, I personally have felt I've seen um, was the divide has gotten greater. When I felt things were getting better and less of a divide, I felt as though a lot of the actions um, that he took didn't make things better, but they made things a little worse. And, and you'd think the opposite, obviously. You'd say, oh, we've got a black president. He's going to become more inclusive. He's going to try to bring it all together. And, and that was kind of the, the, the mindset, I believe, of, of most everybody, most Americans. And um, I really feel, um, specifically with the law and order, um, I understand that there's prejudice. I remember Ron Settles, you know, which was a big deal. Yes, yeah, Signal Hill. Right, that was Hill. that was okay. one of the first actions I ever got involved with. Right. So yes. I'm so I'm very, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm looking through this narrow lens. I, I have a very good perspective. I believe I have a very good perspective on that. There is injustice. There are bad police officers, just like there are bad priests, bad rabbis. You know, there are people in power positions, bad politicians. That, that there's plenty of those to go around. So there, there's lots of bad people in different categories. But my, my strongest concern and fear is that our president, at the time when, when, when Obama reacted to some of the high-profile incidents, I believe he could have handled it in a much better, more inclusive way. And by the way he handled it, jumping the gun, with the, starting off with a college professor in, you know, in Harvard, um, where he was breaking into his own place. No one knew that he was breaking into his own place. You, know, you just see a man trying to break into a place. You know, and he automatically well, you, you, went. You generally don't characterize when someone is going into their home as breaking into their home. Well, no. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. and, and when all the facts were out, of course. But that's the. But but here's my here's my problem with how that was handled. I agree with you a hundred percent. But the way it was, the way the the way the story grew, and the way it became inflamed, and that's why that's why my concern was the inflaming of the story, was we automatically jumped the gun. And assumed that the officer was at fault, that he had to be at fault. It must be a racially charged deal. And then at the end, as you recall, the president cycled back and invited the police officer to the White House for a beer. And hey, you know, sorry about that. You know, all the facts weren't in, and he jumped the gun. And that's not a really that's not the best example to use. But what I'll say is, I felt like that was kind of the beginning of. Everywhere we looked, then it had to be it had to be the cops' fault. It had to be, and again, there are instances where it definitely was the cops' fault, and and certainly justice needs to be swift and and, and to the point. I think that we've got uh, we have to back our police. They have to be innocent until proven guilty. We have to go into the, into the mindset. If not, when then when there is no law and order, then it's anarchy, and we might as well just all put a gun on our side and you know hope for the best. I mean, I'm not a right wing person. I'm a pro choice Republican, so. I, I believe independent thinking still, I can still look at something um, from both sides. And um, I may not always agree with the person I'm sitting across from, and I'm sure you'll have some, maybe some different insight than I have. So um, I'm appreciative of the term you just used. You said that I might have different insight. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was, a, that was an apt term to use because I do have different insight. I believe that the lens that we see through in life that that sort of shapes our opinions. I walk through this world in a different body than you do. I have different experiences. You have different experiences. Some insights shape my feelings, my emotions. Some insights have led me to do a deep dive and to really try to understand why we have the outcomes that we have in this country when it comes to interactions with police. And I'm going to be very specific here. It's not just people of color, but police and black men, and also black women. 
So um, I'm a mother. We started our conversation talking about us both having children. Yes. I, have a, I have a son and I have a daughter just like you. Um, my daughter is an attorney and my son is a teacher. My son recently moved out of the United States. He's now living in Japan. And one of the reasons that he left is because even though he was on the honor roll, he went, got his four-year degree straight through on the honor roll at Loyola Marymount University, got his master's degree, He's done wonderfully. Um, he it's owns wonderful. property. He owns property in Long Beach that I manage because he lives in Japan. Right. One of the reasons he lives in Japan is he just got sick and tired of being stopped, but driving while black, walking while black, talking while black. His life experience is very different, and it informs him of his safety. Now, I think that it's important that we have a society where we live by the rule of law. That's why I'm a law professor. I love the law. I love our Constitution. Unfortunately, um, there are many people in power that don't seem to love the Constitution, or they say they do, but their behavior doesn't necessarily suggest that they do. Um, I'm going to sort of go back a little bit to the Skip Gates uh, controversy. So the president handled it in the way that he did, and I don't think that the president could have handled it in any way without some form of criticism. He was criticized from the right and he was also criticized from the left. And I would expect everyone, well, I would expect many people to be dissatisfied because in this country, a country that is comprised of more different kinds of people than any country on earth, we do not have racial literacy. We don't talk. We don't study, we don't understand our differences. We don't even understand the difference between um, ethnicity and race, nationality and religion. We use the terms interchangeably. We fumble on those terms because we try to sidestep it without getting deep and understanding what is happening in this country and has been happening for 400 years. In South Africa, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and became president of South Africa, one of the first things that he did was he had this period of truth and reconciliation. And that has put South Africa so far ahead of the United States when it comes to having the ability to discuss issues that are race-centered. Wow. And that's just such a powerful conversation between the two of them. And really, I think, just highlights the the magic that you were able to create here of zooming out from all of the news media screaming at each other on television and the raucous, you know, Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> uh, screaming matches and really just zoom zoom out and get two people who are just having a heart to heart and explaining their life experiences and their perspective to each other and getting just that much closer to actually making an impact and actually changing somebody else's mind or, or belief, or at least, at least just understanding what somebody else is saying. Mm -hmm. And when else would these two people necessarily get a chance to sit down unencumbered like that? You know, they could both be at the same cocktail party, but are they going to have that conversation? Right. Probably not. And I mean, I could listen to her for hours, but Probably I'm, I'm going to assume that being him and hearing somebody who's a mother 
of a young of a young black man say my son moved out of this country because he was tired of being confronted uh simply for being black by law enforcement i'm sure that for ben to hear that from the the, the man's mother had an impact on him that that it wouldn't have had if if he had just read it in an article somewhere Right. And what I also love about her, too, is that she's able in her other um, in her other clips, she's able to just tell a story and just, you know, tell her life's experience and really put the listener into that place where they're now living that life and can imagine exactly what's going on. And, And this is why. This is why canvassing is always so important for political campaigns. Right. Is because it gets a real human who believe strongly about something in front of your door. And you now have somebody who believes differently than you talking to you face to face, heart to heart and having that in face conversation. You can't turn off the cell phone. You can't hang up. You can shut the door, but that's against so many norms that you have somebody in front of you. You're not going to treat them like an animal. You're not going to be disrespectful toward them all of the normal rules apply and that's what really makes us powerful. Right. Yeah. It's so much different than just hitting the block button on Twitter. And, you know, people say things on the internet that they would never say if you were face to face with them. Right. They, they yeah. you know, they can, they can say all, all sorts of crazy stuff. What's really, you know, interesting to me about, about this clip is we see the ability of persuasiveness and persuasion and communicating a point See, Sharon is able in this clip and in in the clips that she has to effectively tune into that other person's energy, deliver a message that they are going to be willing to accept and that all of those listening are going to be willing to accept, right? So when she starts talking about how, you know, I walk through this world in a different body than you do, I have different experiences, you have different experiences. Well, that's what we would call a pacing statement. Right. In other words, she's saying, hey, this is true. This is true. This is true. And people are nodding their heads and nodding their heads. And then she goes to lead the conversation to somewhere that is a place of common experience, a place of uh, commonality. So being able to, to sit down and have that conversation is so important. And the other thing is, you know, noticing this, you know, we've played this in an audio format here. But on the video, it's it's interesting to note some of the body language that's that's happening. So you notice in Ben that he has this kind of preemptive, apologetic, you know, way, perhaps to be more convincing or to gain empathy with Sharon. And his body language, actually, when he first starts starts that out, is he has his hands up and they're kind of pushing out. So we're talking about open palms, right? He's very symmetrical. He's pushing away, almost like a. Um, you know, hands up type of, you know, Hey, I'm putting my hands up. So you see, there's nothing in my hands type of thing. Hmm. Like a don't blame me, but it's below his shoulders. So this is what, you know, he's continually doing, but the moment that she Mm -hmm. challenges him, right? She says, for example, you know, you don't generally characterize someone entering into their own house as breaking in. (laughs) I love that. It was such a snap. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right in that moment, he changes and he goes into body language that we would call the placator body language, which is open heart, open uh, hands that are up. Okay, in other words, it's like the person having that, you know, I'm sorry, I did something wrong and I'm just now trying to do a a, uh, 
uh, of being able to bring it back, back to the surface or down to your level once again. So his body language changed based on her kind of calling him on that point and, and bringing it in. And so I noticed that, you know, how this, this actually impacts upon political conversations is, well, do people even have necessarily the persuasion skills, the ability to speak, and the ability to articulate a point necessary to get across what they're actually thinking and feeling versus just relying on some broad base, you know, point that they might have been given from their particular news network, which, of course, is designed to be contentious. Right. And a limited amount of time to express that. Like, um, you know, there have been I mentioned this to you guys before. There have been some attempts on, you know, on cable news networks and on even on network TV of some high profile people bringing you know doing these sort of round table discussions or um you know forums to bridge the divide but they end up what they end up doing is inserting themselves right in the middle of these conversations and saying okay Sharon what do you think about police brutality and then Sharon feels like she has to make a talking point right. within 15 seconds before they cut to mm -hmm. commercial and then Ben has to defend his point and so he already he feels like he already knows what she's going to say so he has to preemptively um, refute what he, you know, her straw man arguments, whatever. And they might feel like they have to be a spokesperson for their whole group. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a lot of risk involved in that. Whereas getting these two people down in an, in an open format where, um, you know, they can say anything and they've got, they've got an open and amount of time to do it. It just was so much more productive. Now is, um, is our culture ready for this kind of slow content? <laughs> probably not i don't know i don't know maybe on npr um or, or you know podcasts are the like the last the last frontier that are sort of where it's permissible to have this kind of conversation um so it'd be interesting to release them as audio pieces but well some um, of us clearly are right like some yeah. there, there's certainly people who want to hear these types of conversations but you mentioned something before which is you know you put out the the trailer on Twitter. Okay, you then took it down. Now you took it down because in your mind it was complete, but it was also because you were getting such of a flack, you know, from from some of the people out there, um, yeah. you know, about it. So there's this kind of hesitancy to talk about politics, you know, in general. And my personal, you know, belief on it is that I think that if people have enough at stake with it, they're kind of going to be willing to just kind of put themselves out there because you know, maybe there already are a minority group, you know, someone that is, you know, LGBT or someone who is um, a minority in terms of race or something like that, where it's very clear. Um, but those people who don't really find themselves, you know, in the crossfire, well, why would they want to stand up and be, you know, they call that in Australia, the tall poppy syndrome, right? Why do, why do they want to stand up and be the person who all of a sudden ascends up so everyone can cut them down? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough. And and I knew there was a risk involved in putting it out there. Um, I know that everything is, things are hypersensitive right now. Um, even more so when, when I put out the trailer than, than when we shot the project. Um, but it was a risk that I kind of felt like throwing caution to the wind and, and seeing what happened. One thing to note, I mentioned this to you guys off thread, but you see in the video clips that I sent you in, in their rough form, you'll see that you see that little stick 
um, in the middle of the frame sticking up and that had a VR rig. And one of the, when we shot the project, I feel like we're going to do this one, one time just to prove the, the concept. Um, so let's try to see all the different oppor- opportunities there are to extend it. And so it was really fun. We, we brought in a three, uh, sorry, 180 degree camera, um, hmm. because I want it, which will eventually be translated to like a VR experience of, of being able to immerse yourself in the conversation. I thought it was very, it would be a very different experience huh. to watch it play out linearly as, because, um, as if you're sitting there, as if you're sitting there as a third party to the conversation. And when you can actually actively move your head left to right and, mm. and are a bit closer to the people and tuning in on their body language, um, whether that's a different experience than watching it l- literally, um, linearly as, as imposed to you by the language and vocabulary of cinema. That's Very interesting. Very interesting. It was really fun. It's amazing. Yeah. So one thing that I want to bring up too, is that we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes, but just the fact that we're living now in an age where Americans are self segregating each other quite a bit, where these two people might end up at the same cocktail party, but nothing more. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a lot of other people who appeared in this series would probably never in a million years run into each other. Mm-hmm. And so so I kind of wonder, with these different values and these different experiences that all of these people are getting from their their different lifestyles, how much of that did you see that come out in discourse? And, and did you see any cultural blindness between people, between groups? Um, well, it was, it's, it was really interesting. I mean, it's just sticking to this, um, Sharon and Ben conversation. There's a moment in the trailer where she says acclimating for you is a lot different from, you know, looks a lot different than acclimating from me, um, as a, you know, as a black person, because he had spent a while talking about his experience growing up in Long Beach where there weren't very many Jewish people and how he had to acclimate to a a culture around him. And she sort of very gently called him on that, um, Mm. which was, you know, it it was interesting to see. I mean, that's kind of like a false equivalency, false equivalency. Yeah. Thank you. And there was some of that. All of these people were really unique and they were complex. And, uh, you know, um, Hank, you know, you know, young white guy in his thirties, had served in Afghanistan, but is also a super left-leading um, lefty filmmaker. And who else? Simone is a physician in Beverly Hills, but a huge Trump supporter and also happens to be pro-choice um, politically. And it's it's interesting when people can, you know, sort of, you, you get to the meat of somebody and realize that there's a lot more, there are a lot more right. layers there than you would assume. Right. There's so much that that can't be covered in in these news broadcasts that that paint it as just one side versus the other, that there's just there's the decisions to vote one way or another are so hyper local and so, so ingrained in people's personalities and their their emotions and and their different experiences that it's a lot harder to paint the other side with a broad brush. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a shame that we don't allow ourselves that complexity anymore. We, um, 
that we we f- that we feel the need to belong to the tribes we belong to um, fully, you know, without any aberration that right. we have to fully subscribe to the the tribal belief system. That that's a shame. People are complex. Yeah, it, it, one of the things is it's almost as if empathy for the other side is being discouraged. Right. We've got we all remember the primaries uh, for 2016. With the uh, Hillary supporters and the and the Bernie supporters dubbed the Bernie Bros, and how people were somehow pitted against each other who basically agreed, right. like yeah. people who basically agreed on just about everything, learned to hate each other and to feel no empathy toward the other side and and to demonize the other side, mm-hmm. and almost to the point even now with the you know liberals and the resistance versus Trump supporters. We see where having empathy or, or sitting down and trying to understand the other side almost becomes like a, a weakness. That sure. You're giving concessions. Like the news sits down with you at this staged round table and you need to talk about, you know, uh, why you voted for this person. And you're, you have to stand up for your side. You can't have that empathy. You can't be you know uh, you can't demur on any point right and because now um, is the time for strength and resolve and you know now now is not the time to back down and it was so discouraging to see so many people say no you know what there is one definition of a bad person and that is if you voted for trump it was so discouraging to to hear mm-hmm. people who are normally empathetic and humanistic in their worldview say no, now's the, not the time to understand other human beings. Now's the time to say, if you support Trump, then you are evil. You are a Nazi, and I'm not. You are not to be dealt with. Because if what you're saying, if, if you're saying that, then you're saying that there's no chance of engaging in discourse with the other person to the point that they might see, they might come around. <laughs> you know, the, there's no mm-hmm. convincing them. Like it's you know the standard line is if you've lived with a year and a half of Trump and are still convinced that he's the right solution, then then you're definitely a bad person. You're never going to come around. I just don't think that's true. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this because this, this idea is really a huge threat to being able to make informed choices and decisions in a democracy and being able to actually choose and make good choices And so if we have a number of people who are in a reactionary state where they feel like they're now on the back foot, where they now have to respond, they now have to take a bunch of steps forward. Well, you know, just as people are complex, this is definitely a complex issue. And there's so many there's so many reasons why this is happening. And I think that if people can start to look at that and go, okay, wait, this is why I am acting the way in which I am. Right. This is why or that that others are acting the way in which they are, you know, because I can tell you, for example, that, you know, I've had that experience where I've agreed with someone, you know, literally like ninety nine percent. And they, you know, after um, uh, the election you know, happened and we started to have conversations and those people who previously had seemed to be kind of mild tempered and not really. Um, letting it affect them that much, all of a sudden created division. And it was like, wait, wait mm-hmm. a second. Whoa, we agree with each other. Why are you, you know, why are you, why are you doing this? Right. Why are you going there? But I think one of the things that happens is that when people are under threat, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about that 
um, tension response, the trauma response, the, the impact of stress, that when people are under stress, they don't seek out more options. You know, what, what we get on a physiological level is tunnel vision. So if you think about a person going into tunnel vision, they limit their options. You know, the, the example I always give is it's like you're looking at a plane going through the sky through a, a, a paper towel tube, okay, you're look, or through a wrapping paper tube. And you look at that plane, it seems to be going really fast. But then what if you were to broaden out that scope? Well, you've just got so many more options. You've got so many more places and things in which you can consider. And in a way, being able to make distinctions and being able to see things from multiple different perspectives, well, isn't that the, the core of being able to actually know who we should elect, of knowing what issues we should support? Because not every issue is black and white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the way back to our first podcast, where at the end you asked, a very salient question about how we limit ourselves by placing identities upon ourselves by saying, I am pro-choice, I am a liberal, I am a fiscal conservative. These sorts of things in our own minds set up those barriers to where, you know, I'm this type of person, so I need to align myself with all of these other thoughts in order to be true to myself and this one other decision I've made. And that's just that's just not how that's not how it should work. Yeah, I mean threat threat is a huge um element of this of this whole issue that that we're around and and a fear and I I mean we've all identified it but um the, like you said the the times in your life where you tend to generalize um things and people and situations is because you're trying to assess a threat level very quickly. Um and it's the times when you're not under duress, you're not under stress, and you're not under threat that you're able to stop and appreciate the nuances and see a pretty flower uh, or appreciate a kind gesture. Um, and it's it's such a shame that we have this fear for each other. And it's even it's even further a shame. It's an even further shame that this fear is not entirely of our own making, you know? That's the, that's the thing right. I can't shake is that there are there – are Forces at play that want us to have this fear. Yeah. And they're forces that are so powerful and so influential and so invisible to us. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that just, just like I am, that you all have very various email lists and things that occur in your inbox of the various causes in which you support. And doesn't it just seem that whatever the opposite political party of the one in which you're supporting Whenever they do anything, the new, you know, the headline of these email subject lines is like, you know, everything is dire. The world is coming to an end and you have to donate now. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because it's good for business. Fear is good for business. And it always will be. And Fox News knows that. And MSNBC knows that as well. Now, I want to turn us over to another group. Um, this is Monica and Jason. And they get into um, a really great discussion about Trump and women. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Monica and Jason before we play? Sure. Well, Jason was the high school friend that I that I had mentioned that reached out to me in the beginning. He's a small business owner uh, in the town where we grew up. Um, just a salt of the earth guy. Really principled, really good heart, big heart, strong belief system, of course. You know, he likes to pride himself on a whole basis of knowledge. And Monica 
works largely around women's issues and um, is an activist, an environmentalist, and really good communicator. And I thought they, I mean, they had a great conversation too. They were super respectful of each other, heard each other out. It never got contentious. Um, and you know, just, I think it was important to get to capture this and, and, um, you know, to our benefit. Okay. Let's hear a little bit of what they have to say. Okay. Anything else like from uh, the Trump side, like about women's rights, women's issues, what do you think about Trump the person? Do you, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you really like, is he bad? Is he? As a, I'm just speaking as a woman, like the way he speaks to women, I'm not a huge fan of, okay. to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what things that he says, his like mannerisms, it's not, it doesn't seem very respectful to me. And that bothers me. Because what about the ones that are kinda does does what he said and what you know what he said in the past does it kind of just even if he says something nice in an appropriate way it's like are you saying you said this over here guy that's the thing is I'm not opposed to someone changing because the whole I mean that's the whole goal like I don't All right you know like I but don't, it wouldn't be Trump changing it would just be him well even if in he's just situation. putting on airs or what is that right. what you mean yeah I mean what if he's respectful I you know I'm like great. He says whatever he says in his head, or you know, alone <laughs> in his room. <laughs> I guess what I'm getting, what I'm getting is like he, uh, he was with Macron's wife, and he, uh-huh. he says something like, "You look great. You look, you, you look like you're in great shape," or something. Yeah. And I, I read some articles where it was just like that is inappropriate. Reebok of all companies, you know. <laughs> Hold on, come closer. Reebok. Reebok put a tweet out, and we're like, you know, the only times you're allowed to say that are, and they were like, it was like inappropriate. I read that, and I don't take fault. The personality of the man. I totally understand people yeah. that don't like him. They're put off. I totally yeah. understand that. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't sign on going. Sweet, what's this new Access Hollywood? That's going to make me want to support him more. Yeah, I go, yeah. oh Absolutely. my god, that's kind of funny joke, but that's going to ruin it. It's going to ruin it for a lot of people and piss a lot of people off. Yeah. And I was uh, like, that's yeah. that's like he could for me. He was saying it's a joke. Take it that face value. I, you know, people were like, how do you support this? I go, guys, I don't support it. Yeah. Like, there's no defending what he said. I'm like, there's bigger, bigger fish to fry. There's just if well, we get stuck at this emotional bottleneck. And I think from like another perspective too, it may be emotional. Like you may think it's emotional, but rape culture in America is emotional for me. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. like the president saying something, even if it's a joke, saying something like that yeah. doesn't give me much confidence in the state of men that support him. No, and no offense to you or anything, but like that is just like, wow, that's a joke to you guys because that's not a joke to me. The the fact that yeah. I have to watch out for it all the time isn't a joke. Do you, you think, know? I know a lot of women do, like, do you think he like practices that? Do you think that was like a description? I have no of- idea, and I really hope not. <laughs> you know, I can't say when he does. In his personal time. I've never met the guy. I've never not. seen him. I really hope not. I don't think so. But, but even as a joke, it's it's a hard one to take as someone where that could like, you know, that 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 kind of stuff ruins people's lives. And it's just, yeah. it's not that funny, you know? Not even a, not even a little bit. <laughs> I'm on so, board with that. Yeah. <laughs> so I totally understand completely better than you understand, like the other side going, he's like disgusting. He said disgusting things. Yeah. And I just, my, my response is, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, uh, at any point, if you can ever at least just put that into a box, 
and keep it in your head, not let it affect too much of everything else going on. I think we can work together on some good stuff. I think there's some big yeah. things we can get done. Well, I think at this point we we just we have to. So I don't see you know just this dwelling is not helping anyone. We need to figure out what we can do to better this country and what that means. What does that mean? I, but but with that joke and things he says, like um, for me, it's a per, it's a personal like you know we fight this every day. The statistics of women's that women that are raped, especially one, and this is just people who report the rapes, are very high. I think it's like one in three or so. I mean, it's crazy. And it's just it's like really that high. I think so, but I mean, don't quote me. But I'm pretty. I you know, if I've heard from, the campus rape culture. I, I read yeah. some of that stuff again. Some of the sources, I kind of go, mm, yeah. What's going on there? But that's one out of three. It's thirty-three percent. But what isn't high for that? You know, for me, like ten yeah. percent's high. I don't want it to be anywhere. I don't. <laughs> you know? I don't think. I don't think men should rape women. Yeah, exactly. We can agree on that. <laughs> but that I think I mean, that's why a lot of people get upset though with stuff like that because it's like it's not a joke. You know, yeah. like this is stuff that we are in fear of and that we live with and that women are constantly trying to live through even, yeah. you know? So I think, um, and I don't like it when people are like, oh, well, you have a wife or a daughter or a sister. It's like, no, these are people. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter that they're your wife or your daughter or your sister. What about, it's like, I know uh, from his business years, like his, his hiring practices, I'm pretty sure he was the first uh, big developer in New York City to hire a woman to lead a project. Well, I mean, his campaign manager is a woman. Kelly Conway. I mean, going yeah. way back, though. Yeah. Like when he was so, I 30, mean, I, when I he was mean, your age, he was building a, a building, and he assigned a woman. It, it was kind of a big news. Yeah. I look at a combination of good PR, and he's, sure. got, he's got a knack for, for talent, to yeah. spot talent, because his sure. whole thing is he's not doing it himself. So, I, like, knowing that, does that matter? Because the way I think he looks at women is two parts. Are you industrious? Are you smart and savvy and a killer like sure. me? Yeah. Or are you pleasant to look and to be around? <laughs> yeah. So I think he, I think there's and there's very little. I think those are the two ways he kind of looks. At, or are you my daughter? You know, and like I think there's like three categories. Yeah. And I don't think I'm too far off with that because you yeah. see the way he talks to other world leaders. You see the way he talks to people um, that are potentially in his in his arena. And then he, you see how he, you know, reflects and, and dotes on, say, his wife, Melania, or other women who are not in the arena. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, that's the thing. Do, do women have to be to a certain level of intelligence or drive to get that respect? Well, all women are super intelligent and have drive. Oh, I mean, what's your... You. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, don't I don't understand the point of the question. No, like, you know what I mean, yeah. in his eyes. Yeah, he's, he's, your, he's your traditional alpha. Like yeah. he's the the alpha of the alphas, you know, good, bad, and different. He's the guy, and you can tell by his mannerisms. If you just watch him without any volume, the way he talks and his goofy expressions and stuff. But that's more about the man, anyways. Which matters. Yeah, I mean, I, it matters if you're in that much of a position of power. I think just the the example you set, and right. that's more of the the issue for me is the example being set. The thing I like about this clip here is that you really see two people on an issue who just have completely different perspectives on it and yet they're still able to share that and have that back and forth so much so that they're he's surprised by the points that she's making and you can see him be a little bit taken aback almost as if he's not confronted by those 
those facts and those ideas on a daily basis. Right. Because he, because she didn't say Donald Trump rapes women. She didn't say you as a supporter of Donald Trump are a rapist. She said the reason that some people dislike what Donald Trump says and behaves like is that is that rape is a huge problem and that's not deniable like and he acknowledged that and she wasn't attacking him and she wasn't attacking trump and she was just saying in fact she was doing the opposite she was she was uh saying things like no offense or you know i don't mean to to you know upset you or or something to that effect Mm -hmm. so being very defensive but then still asserting her her opinions and her thoughts about you know why this is actually causing people to feel this way and i think that that's i don't know it looked like something he might not have you know really placed himself into recently i agree with you and both of them very generous of spirit conversationally uh jason is one of the funniest people i know he's he's also a salesperson (laughs) like it (laughs) uh so he knows that if he you know there are certain techniques like saying i totally get i agree with you it's like disgusting all those things but let's just take that as read and then hear my point you know like that's a sales (laughs) technique and it's a it's an effective one right Mm. yeah it's amazing we see that ability to build rapport right that being able to connect with another person that part of this and having conversations is just how how do you build rapport did you find adam that when in some of the moments of discourse that some of the participants were you know, much better at building rapport or connecting with each other than others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There were, there were a couple of personalities that mixed, you know, like oil and water. And then, (laughs) you know, uh, we paired Jason off with two different people because we had one person drop out. Um, both of those pairings really worked well together. Um, just really easy conversation, and and I think that has everything to do with openness and generosity. Um, and I something that I've discussed separately with Jason is is where humor comes into play, um, because you know you you guys know how um, how much the the right gets held up on um, political correctness um, mm-hmm. to the point that they equate political correctness in quotes as, as a limit to free speech. Um, and something that Jason and I have discussed is that some of it can be boiled down to us, a differing senses of humor, (laughs) different, differing, Mm. because she says what Monica says in that clip is, you know, some people might think that's funny. It's a joke. It's, you know, he was making a joke. It's locker room talk. Well, I know what a big problem rape culture is in, the, in in this country. It's that's not funny to me. That's not a joke, and I think mm-hmm. that a lot of um, what we call political correctness is is differing ideas of what is funny, what is permissible, and to say in in polite company, um, and who is polite company, and and what epithets have you grown up understanding as, um you know, as absolutely acceptable in all groupings of conversation, you know, racial slurs and and whatnot. Have you grown up saying, oh, that's just what we say. That's a term we use Mm -hmm. for these people. Whereas other groupings absolutely bristle to the point that they bring up maybe, you know, flashbacks to violence or, you know, threats of literal danger, existential threats. 
And I, I think that we, we have to do a better job. Those of us who believe that there are some proper, uh, you know, goals of politically correct culture have to do a better job explaining, educating, uh, to the other side that when we ask for that type of language, it's because the, the language actually has a real effect on people. It's not because, you know, it's not because we're like, we're, it's a limit of free speech. It's because the, these are real dangers that real people have in their lives. And, and the speech exacerbates that. Right. Right. And, and that's sort of part of that self segregation of society that I was talking about earlier is that when you talk about what is polite company, well, if you're only around people who are of the same class and race and uh, social strata, you're only going to have polite company right. that thinks similarly about what's acceptable and what's not. And the clash maybe of cultures here that we're seeing with this political correctness movement is that the polite companies have become so separated that now people enter a group that's dissimilar to their own and are shocked that people are upset about something that is perfectly normal in the in the culture where they grew up and where they're cultured right and you know what happens and this is this dawns on me often what happens when you're you're suddenly exposed to the idea that something that you think is right is actually wrong what happens mm. what follows from that is a sense of shame and shame is destructive um uh this happened to me last year actually this a a younger person that i work with that i worked with used um you know used a, a phrase that completely innocently she had grown up in a in a fairly um you know mo- monocultural place and mm-hmm. she used the term colored colored person instead of person of color and it was just absolutely like a misunderstanding of the of the phrasing and mm-hmm. um when somebody sort of like with a with a very gentle smile on their face called her out on it she went off into the into another room and started crying because mm. uh, she felt like such a country bumpkin. She felt like, mm. oh no, I'm this is the very thing I'm fighting against with my upbringing. This, you know, I came from the sticks, and I'm in the big city, and I'm trying to um, foster, you know, the sophistication. Hmm. And she had sh- sort of like. Sh- sh- she had shown her her roots and this was shameful for her when people are made to feel shame um when you call them out on something that they didn't know was was improper then they're well, you know some people will retreat and cry but some people will lash out and say right you're wrong and here's a confederate flag just to, to to prove my point right there's sort of those two reactions right there uh, taylor i think you you were talking about this not too long ago um you know when you're attacked whether it's a real attack or an imagined one, there's two reactions to submit or to submit and say that you're wrong and you're so sorry or to lash out and attack. Yeah. And, right. and repress shame. You know, when a person takes uh, something they were ashamed of or that they feel bad about or that they uh, just aren't okay with and it's not integrated that, you know, some people have the, the ego strength and the, 
um, congruence within themselves and the uh, resourcefulness to be able to just face that and go, oh, wait, I'm feeling something right now that's not in alignment with who I am. Let me go inside and figure that out. Like, let me understand, okay, why is it that, you know, what I'm feeling is not in align, not seemingly in alignment with the world? But then there's the other reaction, which is up, oh, you know what, I'm going to feel something. So I'm going to go and have a drink. I'm going to go and watch a bunch of TV. I'm going to go and get addicted to electronics or have, uh, you know, go to a political rally, you know, in this, in this, you know, uh, conversation. Right. So there's, there's that other reaction that can happen. And, and yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting because one of, one of the things that, you know, I was considering as I was watching through these clips is, okay, what are people even able to deal with their own emotions when the difficult conversations come up? Are they even able Mm. to notice how they're feeling about something to be able to authentically take in the viewpoint of another person? And I guess that my answer to that would be, well, we just got to keep having the conversations. You know, we got to keep talking about it Absolutely. because if we don't, if we don't talk, then, you know, people never, never have the opportunity to even hear what the other side has to say. Right. To me, that uh, translates to one key thing and that's exposure. You expose yourself to whatever it is that you feel might threaten you as often and Mm -hmm. frequently as possible. And you you realize that that that's not as great as of a threat. Um, So if it's exposure to this kind of conversation, then you will get to the point where you're less inclined to react to them with as much emotionality and and um, and anger or whatever, whatever it is. And so my challenge for the listeners at home is to think back to the last political discussion you were in, maybe the last argument that you had. And think about maybe how you dealt with it in that moment. And and were you able to summon the personal resources to go in and try and understand exactly why these feelings and thoughts weren't congruent with your with your own and your own worldview? Or did you perhaps lash out? Think about that. And that's what's happening when you have these political discussions with other people. And that's what we see on a micro level, person to person. Adam, thank you so much. This is this was really fascinating. So good to be a part of. Thanks for treating it with the respect that you guys did. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. We'd like to thank Adam Lissigore for being our guest uh, here today. And I think this is an ongoing discussion. You know, this is something which we can continue to talk about and, you know, hopefully have a lot more conversations like discourse that can flow through and get started. So if you enjoyed today's show, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure to check out that Patreon page. Because on Patreon, you can find that, well, for as little as buying us a cup of coffee, you're able to support the show. And so uh, let us know your feedback on the show, who you'd like to see on the show. And until next time, we will see you then. Mm